Welcome to the Diversity at Work podcast, where we unpack what it's really going to take to close the gender gap in the workplace. Here is your host, leadership coach and diversity consultant, Andrea Jansen. This episode is sponsored by Duckish Natural Skincare. I am super excited that they have jumped on board to sponsor the show because I actually know Carolyn Crew, the founder, personally. A couple of years ago, before there was a Reignite Your Ambition coaching program, before there was a workshop, before there was an ambitious everyday journal, I had an idea for an exercise to help people get clear on what drives their ambition so that they could set goals, feel fulfilled, and have something to strive for. So before I could do that, I actually had a group of entrepreneurs that I knew and I asked them if I could test the exercise on them. So I asked Carolyn, what is the something that you're striving for? What drives your ambition? What motivates you to get up every day and go to work? And she said, 2%. And I didn't really expect an answer like that. And I asked her to explain. And she said that only 2% of women entrepreneurs actually reach a million dollars in annual revenue in their businesses. And that is what motivated her to start Duckish Natural Skincare. They have lotion sticks, lip balm, baby products, and bath products. They're really innovative. And my favorite product is their lotion stick. It looks like deodorant, but it's actually lotion. So you just rub it on your legs, you rub it on your arms, your hands, your face. You can even use it as a lip balm. And I love it because it's solid. And when I travel, I can keep it in my carry-on and I don't need to worry about having too much liquid to get through security. And for all of the Diversity at Work listeners, Duckish is offering you 15% off of your order. So you need to head to duckish.ca, that is D-U-C-K-I-S-H dot C-A, and enter the promo code diversity at work at checkout, and you will get 15% off of your order. The way I see it is that if you need to buy lotion anyways, might as well buy it from a women-owned business so that you can do your part to close the gender gap. They ship to the U.S. and Canada, so head to duckish.ca and enter the promo code diversity at work and you will get 15% off. Hello, it's Andrea Jensen here and I'm so excited to share today's interview with you. I sat down with Amy Marks, who is the CEO of Excite Modular, and Amy is known as the queen of prefab, and that's because she literally created the role of the first prefabrication construction consultant. And she created the language, she's the thought leader, and she really educated builders around the world on how to bring prefabrication into the construction process. She's also used this platform to be a champion for diversity. So we talked about what it's like working in a male-dominated industry and what needs to happen for things to really change. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast. I'm so excited that you're here today. Can you introduce yourself and tell me what you do? Sure. Thank you so much for having me on. My name is Amy Marks, and I am the CEO and owner of Excite Modular. We are an innovative company that actually does two things. We have a consulting business where we work with very large-scale technology-embedded projects. And we help them to implement and optimize prefabrication as consultants. And then we also have a design build company um, under the same name where we design build very complicated technical modules for things like data centers and cable landing stations 
that are built here in the U.S. and then shipped overseas. Cool. So I wanted to stem it down because some people listening aren't in the construction industry. So the way I, I'm going to explain to you what I think it is that you do, and then you correct me if I'm wrong. So you build things in the United States, like data centers, and you build it in the United States and you ship it all over the world. So Africa, Singapore, Australia, and then it becomes a data center. And it also these big cables, as, so cables that go underwater, as soon as they leave the water, they go into one of your buildings. That's what you do, right? That was really great. On the, on the design build side, yes, the product that we actually build is a modular steel and concrete data center or a cable landing station or any real technology embedded equipment enclosure. And we build them here in the U.S. We do also do them for the U.S. Um, in the past, we've done about 10,000 of those buildings for Verizon uh, in the U.S. And what we do usually these days, we've been shipping them to very remote locations because our buildings are hardened against uh, disaster uh, like typhoons and super typhoons and uh, seismic activity. So, yeah, we ship them to places where the construction is really difficult. That's cool. So where they don't have the innovation and the technology in that market to build it there, you actually bring that innovative way of having a building. So it's safe, it's reliable. That's pretty, I think that's pretty cool. And another thing that I find really fascinating about you is that you also have a consulting side and you were saying in module construction, you kind of, you are the thought leader. You are the person that kind of came up with the terminology that wrote the book on what it is because uh, when we met at the Autodesk conference, there were some presentations and people were quoting you on the slides and you were there in the background. So I think that's pretty awesome. Thank you. Uh, you know, so in the industry, actually, almost 10 years ago, after I left, you know, manufacturing uh, from a larger company, we started a consulting business first at Excite because it, it was interesting to me that people really didn't understand how to change their process and their understanding and their design and their procurement and construction process to really enable prefabricated sub-assemblies and modules and components. So for us, you know, for me, it was really important to set the language around that and to come up with the process for that and to teach, have a teachable process that could be institutionalized in lots of businesses. I think in business, lots of people know how to do some Herculean effort and they talk a lot about some one-off that happens. But it was always my goal in the construction industry to create a teachable, embedded process that people could really learn and improve upon um, in, their, in their own businesses so that they could get a much more productive and safer project and job site. I think that's so cool because it's, you're building relationships with the customers and it's, you're playing the long game, right? Like you develop the systems, you develop the language, and now you can deliver it. And it's, it's like positioned you in this place where I'm sure like the, it, it's, you don't have a lot of competitors, do you? No, um, especially like, there are some on the modular data center side, obviously, but I think in the consulting world, we're, you know, I think I'm one of a kind in the sense that, um, you know, that whole queen of prefab thing started because people just didn't know about prefab at all. So they would, you know, they would, they would know how to do one thing, one small part of what we call the offsite continuum, which is, you know, everything from intelligent materials all the way up through full volumetric multi-story modules. They might know one small thing about that or one of their subcontractors knew about it, but they didn't really know how to enable that as a general contractor. And they didn't really know how to ask for that as an owner. And designers don't, and still to this day, like many of them don't really know how to design for those prefabricated elements or use design for manufacturing and assembly um, principles. So those are principles that we came up with for the construction industry and prefab that we teach, you know, and that I teach every day. And, and really I evangelize for the technology because 
it is a safer way to build. And we, we are in a labor shortage on this planet of skilled workers. So it's not about taking jobs away from anybody anymore. This is about survival in our construction industry to create more complex jobs while still being productive. I love it. And I'm really interested how you got into this because you started, I actually had assumed because I met you at a tech construction conference that you were an engineer, an architect, that kind of background. But when I looked you up on LinkedIn, it said you studied public relations and you used to work in sales. So tell me about how this happened. Well, that's a good story. So I grew up in a construction family and my mother and my dad actually started a very large construction company in their basement when I was a little kid. Um, and my mom ran permits and my dad was an engineer and we helped in the family business growing up. And all they said to me really about going to college, and they really didn't, to be honest, they weren't promoting my education so much, but they basically said, whatever you do, don't go into construction. And I said, okay, I won't go into construction. So I really didn't have any guidance from them about what to do. And people kind of met me and said, well, you're great with people. Why don't you do PR? And I said, okay, well, uh, so I, I basically went to University of Florida undergrad, which has like one of the top three public relations colleges in the country. And, and I, to be honest, I stuck out like a sore thumb. I didn't run around in classes in like a little like, you know, suit pants outfit. And I wasn't part of like the, the public relations association. So I didn't really ever fit in. And um, so then people said, well, you're great with people. You can understand like business. Why don't you go into sales? So I ended up going into some, a combination of partnership marketing and sales in my early career. And, and partnership marketing was basically about how to create win-win barter scenarios um, when no one had any money and we were just exchanging you know, uh, what we had. And then I actually, my, the best jobs I ever had, I went door-to-door -door sales uh, calling on businesses to get them to buy advertising and partnership marketing in my, you know, my early 20s. And I made, I was actually the top salesperson at the company like, and the top selling manager for many, you know, the, the, the few years that I worked there. But I love the fact that I just got to go into businesses and learn about business. Uh, I used to practice thin selling. So I would, my favorite part of the sale wasn't even the clothes. It was really just learning about their pain points and, you know, what they go through and what their strategy was and how they were going to attack that. So I just am a, like a voracious student of business and talking with people. Um, and then actually I did go and work for my family business in construction and then went and identified an opportunity to buy a modular manufacturer where I ended up becoming a, a minority shareholder and the president of that company eventually, which was, it ended up being the oldest modular manufacturing company in the, in the country. Um, so it was, it was a pretty great opportunity, but I've always just been a voracious learner of business and I love talking with people about, about business. So I feel, I want to kind of back up a little bit because the business sure. of construction is a lucrative business, but early in the story, your parents, told you do not go into construction and I think that's a common narrative that people hear today so tell me more about that well I just think you know as a woman working in the construction industry especially back then you know it's just tough and like I'm a pretty tough cookie I actually was a competitive rugby player for almost 15 years so I'm pretty tough. I almost wondered if they were worried about the construction industry and me going into it rather than, you know, me going into an industry that wouldn't welcome me. So it's maybe a little bit of both. I think it's just, you know, you want your, you want, you want to be in an industry that's not just diverse because it's two parts, right? You have to have an industry that has a lot of people with diverse thought and that come from different backgrounds, but you also want to have inclusion. So you want to be in a place where if you bring those people to the industry that they're welcome. And I think, you know, most parents, if you're the parent of a, of, you know, back then of a, of a woman or, you know, a young lady, 
it doesn't seem like the most inclusive industry to be around in New York and the construction industry back then. But, you know, I think like most, um, you know, people that do different things in life, we don't really necessarily listen to what people tell us we have to do. I like hearing I can't do something, then it makes me, makes me want to do it, I think. So it makes you want to. And what about, um, you have a daughter, so would you recommend <laughs> she goes into construction? It's funny, I find myself wanting to fall into the trap of saying, uh, anything but this. But no, you know, it's funny. I think she, she's actually, interestingly enough, she's great at math and science. And she wants to be a chemical engineer right now and work for NASA. Um, so she, like, she wants, to, first she wanted to be an astronaut or an orthodontist, and then she decided she wants to be a chemical engineer now. So I just, I basically call her a math lead. I love that she loves science. Um, she loves the fact that um, I have my own business and that I travel the world. And she loves, you know, talking about my business and she really understands it. So I don't think I could, honestly, she's, she's basically a mini me. I couldn't talk her out of doing anything that she would want to do anyway. Okay, really. So that's amazing to have a mother like you that's literally like just creating these opportunities, figuring it out, being innovative, pushing boundaries. I love it. Um, so one thing that I noticed about you right away is that you love change, you love innovation, you love to push boundaries, but the construction industry is traditionally slow to adopt new things. So yeah. what motivates you to keep going? You know, it's funny. I, I, I have great conversations sometimes with really innovative thinkers in the space, to be honest. And I feel like those conversations keep me going. Like yesterday, I was speaking to some data center architects and hearing them speak, I realized, wow, they're, this is great. They're new to this, but they get it and they want to learn and they see it. They see the, the, the process change and they see the role, you know, the roles that have to change. So I have to tell you, there are, there are days where I wake up and I have projects that you know, are really tough to go to where I, as I like to say, the company doesn't have a very high prefab readiness index, right? So they're not already the most innovative company. They're not, their culture and their strategy aren't necessarily um, open to learning and it's tough. So I think, you know, I do it, honestly, I'm just passionate about seeing things be better. You know, I wake up every day and I know that if, it's, if I don't go out and keep getting up and keep changing people's minds and keep talking to people that people are going to get hurt on job sites People aren't going to finish these projects on time. They're going to be overrun with costs. And we're just not going to have a, a vibrant industry. So I just feel, I feel it's part of my passion um, to go out and really teach and, and get people on board to just thinking differently. Because it's a very, as you maybe may or not know, the construction industry is a very insulated industry, right? It's like very incestuous. People go from one place to another. And now that big companies, you know, are starting to self-perform lots of their own construction, like the guys that, uh, I won't say their names, but like the big content providers, they always ask me like, how do you think our people are doing? And I'm like, you know, just because you give them a business card that has a different logo on it, doesn't make them, you know, an innovative thought leader. You know, it doesn't make them open to process change. If you hire them out of the same industry, that's not known for innovative thinking. But we've been very insulated and we are not a very diverse, you know, population. So I just feel like it's my place to have, to, I want to see things be right. Actually, I'm always driven by making sure things are as right as they could be and improved upon. So how do you go about that? Because like people aren't open to this, this idea, but for whatever reason, you're able to get them on board, to push it through and work with these companies. So I'm just curious how you have those conversations. I mean, a lot of it actually, so I kind of go by the, the, the phrase, the harder the truth to tell, the truer the friend that tells it. You know, I would tell you that change doesn't happen without dissatisfaction. And I am 
pretty in your face about talking about some of the things that aren't going well in our industry and holding up a mirror to the industry of things that really need to change and improve and also showing them a solution, a clear vision of how it could improve, right? So it's one thing just to, I feel like when people say, you know, things are bad and we need to change, but if they have no understanding of what the vision of what it could be, and then they also don't have a process with some clear action you know, points and steps that they can take to get there, that's the big difference, right? So if you've ever looked at Dan Miller's formula for, for change, that's basically what it lays out. You have to have dissatisfaction. Um, they have to have a, you know, a clear vision of where they want to go, and they need some actual process and action steps in order to overcome resistance, right? Because there is a lot of resistance to change in an industry that has basically, you know, been here for a hundred years and I go on job sites all the time and they're still snapping chalk lines and the laser equipment is sitting in the corner collecting dust. But I think if you don't tell people that you see that and that you're not giving them the hard truth, you know, no one changes, you know, and there, there's not, there really, there's not much incentive, honestly, in a very project centric business like construction for people to change. They're really only benefited and bonus and um, promoted based on a project by project basis. So there aren't many people in the construction industry that are in it for the long game. And that's part of the problem. That's why we haven't improved as an industry. Okay. And I think this goes back to what you said earlier about when you started in sales, about how your favorite thing was figuring out the pain and figuring out what you can do about it. So I think this like curiosity and that ability to like highlight the pain and show people that like this is going on and be the person. I love that thing you said, like the friend is the one that's going to tell you the hard thing. It makes their relationship stronger. And I think that's what has gotten you to be like the label, giving you the label, the queen of prefab, because you are willing to step in, understand the pain and work with them for a better solution. So I think that's really awesome that you're doing that, Amy. Thanks. It's not easy on some days, believe me. There are days where, where it gets, a, it's a pretty heavy lift. <laughs> So tell me, cause it's interesting when I talk to a lot of people who have done, like, it sounds really hard. Like you started, like you bought a company, you started this company, you wrote the language for this industry. We haven't talked really about the roadblocks. So what were some of them that came as you're kind of starting this company, building this company, building your reputation? You know, I think it's funny that you mentioned that I don't have a technical background. You know, I don't have a technical degree. And I, I, I want to tell people, you know, interestingly enough, as a CEO of a company, in the beginning, I always thought, man, I really need to know about everything. So I would study up on everything I could possibly study up on. Um, but in reality, I'm never going to, especially in construction in that industry or any industry that's very complex, running a company, you can't be the expert at every part and piece of that because you just can't. It's impossible for one person to know all of that. So I had to, it was actually my assistant who's been with me for almost 15 years. One day she said to me, you know, you own this company and you're the CEO. You could just tell people you don't know the answer, but that someone who works for you does. And that you could get, you could hire somebody if you don't have somebody. And I said, oh, you know what? You're right. I'm not going to be embarrassed about saying if I don't know something. And really, you know, that's when we did, I really understood that the smartest people in the world that I know are the ones that are really passionate and confident about the things they know best. But they're also okay saying that they don't know the answer, but they know how to find out the answer, right? And so yeah, I think the roadblock has been, you know, not just being a woman in a, you know, most unbelievably male-dominated uh, industry, but also the fact that I wasn't from a technical background. My technical background is really strategy and business, and you know, I know how things should be processed, and I understand how things should will, would be purchased, and I understood how we would change minds. So I think one of the biggest roadblocks, besides being a woman, is the fact that 
you know, I don't have, I'm not an architect, I'm not an engineer, but I hire architects and engineers. And so I think I always like to say, I would get usually in front of a group of um, men in the construction industry and they would play a game whenever I would speak called stump the girl game. And I'd be talking about the process and the strategy and changing their minds and showing them what could be done. And then somebody in the room inevitably always would try to ask me the most technical question they could think of that had almost nothing to do with the conversation just to show everybody that I didn't know the answer. So, you know, I think that, you know, I never let it, you know, uh, I, I never let it negate my value in the conversation. So I always knew what that game was, you know, and the fact that why they were doing it. And I, I really didn't let it shake me. And I would just keep going at it. And I think part, part of that is my rugby background. I just, I don't know how to stop. I just keep going forward, keep rocking on, keep moving forward. Um, because that's, that's how you get to the, to the try zone. And that's how you win. You know, so it didn't really save me that much. But there are tons of obstacles in this industry. Not just being a woman and not just process. This is an industry that doesn't really change, right? It's, it's, not, it's not been known for change and innovation. But you're the champion and like, and you're, but you're making it happen. And it's, I really admire that about you, Amy. And just especially that experience that you shared of like the stump, the girl, like that happens, like that's awful. Like, yeah, it's awful that that happens. And I can see how, like, I would probably be stumbled. I would probably not be able to handle it because that, that sounds really hard. I feel like it could be a big hit on your self-esteem and it could really affect you, but you're able, you've built up this resilience, you've built up this confidence that enables you to like push through it and keep going. And at the end of the day, build, have an amazing business, have great relationship with your customers. And it's all, I love that you're just able to see it all in a positive light. I really, so I just, I'm just saying this because I admire this about you. Um, Amy. And I want to go back to the first time that we met, because we don't actually know each other very well. So we met at the Autodesk conference, and it was during a panel discussion, and we both were going up to talk to the moderator. And I love this boldness of, about you, because you said to the moderator, Lorian Barlow, she's actually on the podcast as well, um, on another episode, I'll link to it in the show notes, but you told her, you said, Lorian, that was such a great panel a lot of women's panel discussions, I end up walking out of. So tell me where that comment came from. Well, so again, I've actually been founder of, of certain groups like Women in Subsea, and I sit on diversity and inclusion as the working group chair for places like Suboptic and other parts of our industry. And I, I get involved in a lot of um, women's talks and, and I, I, I have to, unfortunately, unfortunately, I have to sit through a lot of those and speak at a lot of those events. And I always tell the conference organizers, I'm like, look, you know, I can't really go to any more panels where everybody's just talking about how hard it is to be a woman in the industry. And like, you know, and even to be honest, like, I can't hear that you just need a mentor and you just, you know, it's okay. And we just need to like, you know, get out there. I just, it's too much. You know, it's like at this point, I've heard it so many times. I, I don't want to hear about like how hard it is to be a woman anymore, or maybe one out of the whole day of panels or one small topic. But I feel like we are not teaching women in this industry any tools. We're not giving them anything to actually go out and work with. We're not telling them that their relationships are actually capital. And we're not telling them how to earn and spend that capital. We're not explaining to them the difference between mentors and sponsorship. You know, the difference between somebody who advises you and gives you counsel, and then someone who sponsors you, who basically puts their reputation on the line to help you get ahead. So I think that we are not really preparing women in industries where they are, you know, if they're in a male-dominated industry, to actually utilize their tools and talents. 
you know, we're not teaching them. Like the reason that I feel like I've been able to get ahead in my industry is that I'm in a very niche of a niche of a niche carve out that I've created a lane and become the expert in that lane. We don't teach people how to look at that and how to figure out what their niche should be or what their talents are and how to use them. I just, I can't sit through anything else just talking about like how difficult it is to be a woman. I feel like, you know, in some ways the pity party, okay, maybe give yourself 10 seconds, but then after that, get yourself up and brush yourself off and figure out how to win. You know, I love it. That's pretty I love everything about that, Amy. And so I talk about sponsorship a lot because I feel like it's not just in male-dominated industries that people don't understand that. I think yes. it's it's everywhere. There's lots of data to back it up. Um, but how do we teach people about this? Because I think it's one of those topics, it's so powerful. And as soon as you get it, people can apply it and they can get results really quickly. But I haven't seen widespread sharing of that message. Well, I think here's the difference, right? Here, here's, here's what I think is happening now, and here's what I think we need to do. What's happening now is we're basically introducing concepts to people, and then all we do at all these conferences is hear the same concept over and over and over again. So one of the things about women in subsea as an example is, you know, my, the, found, the other founder and myself, we said, we're not going to do any um, talks at anything a- anymore. We're not going to do any, like, panels. We're not going to do any conversations like that. We want to do facilitated teaching and interaction when we get in a room with a bunch of you know men and women in the industry because I by the way I'm a big believer in champions of women are needed so um, we've just made it our our goal to have interactive sessions where we actually teach and learn from others and get action items and tools out of those sessions right so it's like I just feel like again I can't sit there and just listen I learn through talk I'm actually you know I learn through literally repeating and hearing myself process it. Other people work through, you know, kinetic learning. We've got to create some tools and some learning that's different than just these conferences where people just talk at you the same old concept, right? Because if you keep doing that, then it just becomes, you know, you just, I, that's why I just can't hear it anymore. And, I, and, and unfortunately, like, you don't get to interact with the great people that are there in the audience, you know? And so we don't have any real facilitated learning. It's just people talking at you all the time, <laughs> I feel like. Yeah. And I think that goes back to like this awareness of yourself of like wanting to be involved in the conversation, wanting to have a tangible action plan is that is literally been instilled in you for your whole life. Cause you were brought up by entrepreneurs who are creating the business, taking action, moving forward, because that you're right. Like that's how you learn. You don't learn by sitting there and having someone talk at you. You learn about like, yeah, maybe have someone talk at you for a couple minutes and then unpack how you can apply this in your company or sit, make a new friend and hear how they've applied it in their company. And then you can go back and take action because talking about diversity and the gender gap is, is okay. But if we don't do anything, things are never going to change. Look, you know, it's funny. I, I teach a class called women don't ask. And then the subtitle is, or do they, and what is, what are the consequences? The fact of the matter is, is that in our industry, in any industry, um, we do ask, actually, we're finding in some of the, some of the, the research that's out there, right? But there, it, we're, it's socially unacceptable for women to ask for things for themselves in business, not just by men. Women also think it's socially unacceptable for women to ask for things in business. And then usually there is a social punishment that goes along um, that's given out by both men and women towards that woman that actually asks for things in business. I, we have to stop that. We have to stop that. We have to, we have to you know, women on women crime has to stop, as I like to say. That's the worst crime there is. And then we just have to really start desensitizing people that it's okay for a woman to be like 
you know, I would say in my type of personality and other personalities where we're aggressive and outgoing and we ask for what we need and we know how to communicate, we have to really start desensitizing people and making them, you know, aware that that's, an, you know, a, a, a personality type that is, that exists, right? I mean, I can't tell you how, I actually lost a job last year and in part of the debrief, the chairman of the company said the feedback he got was that Amy Marks was very aggressive. And I thought, wow, that's insane. Um, it was a job that we should have really won, but like the, it was a cultural issue, obviously, in some ways. But the fact that, you know, somebody would even think it's acceptable to say that out loud in a debrief for, you know, losing a job is unbelievable to me. And, you know, of course, if I were a man, nobody would ever say those words. But, you know, and I came back and said on a, on, online, yeah, I am aggressive. I'm aggressive about doing the right thing for my customers, about doing the right thing, you know, for my employees. If you want to call me aggressive, then I'll bathe in that comment. You know, it's, we don't really teach the fact that that's okay. We have to really start doing that. Yeah. It's almost like, well, the thing is like the word assertive, right? So just thinking about <laughs> fishing for a job, it's like, wow, that leader is so assertive. They're going to be on the lookout for my needs They're If something's <laughs> not right, they're going to go to bat for me. Right. It's just like, you just reframe it in a different way, but because it was coming from you, that gender stereotype lens was on and right. they, they weren't able to see it as a positive. Yeah, I mean, all that lean in stuff is great. And it, and it, and basically my only issue with it is that you do have to utilize some techniques that aren't necessarily aligned with your authentic self, right? So it's not part of my nature to have to say when I'm aggressive in a meeting to say, you know, if you like how aggressive I am in this meeting, you'll love it when I'm on your side because I'll be just as aggressive when I negotiate on your behalf. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's like something that, you know, we teach women that they have to say so that people can like excuse their aggressive behavior and like, really point out that it works for the company they're talking to. And yeah, I get it. And by the way, the funny part is it does work. You know, these techniques work. So I'm not saying they don't work. I just find it like sometimes, you know, I have an internal dissonance with my uh, authentic self and having to do that, you know, right now. And I don't know. I, yeah, it's like, I'm not saying these aren't great techniques and stuff, but it just kind of gives me the ickies, as I would say, internally to have to do it. And believe yeah. me, I've had to do it too. But, you know, and I, I think... And by the way, if we keep doing that, then that becomes the accepted behavior. Then I have to keep always excusing the fact that I'm aggressive. Why do I have to keep excusing the fact that I'm probably, if I, again, if I were a different gender, they'd be like, my God, that guy is such a go-getter. He's, he's unbelievable. He's going to get it done. You know, like, why, why do I have to keep excusing that fact? And I don't love that. And by the way, it doesn't go over well with both men and women when I don't excuse the fact. But I feel like if I don't take it on the chin, then the woman behind me still has to keep doing this kind of crazy stuff. And I, I feel like that's, you know, have you ever read the challenger sale, the challenger sale, mm -mm. Um, the book, the challenger. So it's very interesting. It's a book that basically talks about the best salesperson and who the best salesperson is. And, and they, they, they looked at like, I don't know, um, all these giant companies and they basically put these salespeople into types. And one was the challenger. One was the relationship builder. One was uh, the lone wolf and like five different types. Right. And they found out that it's not the relationship builder that's actually the number one salesperson in any organization. It's the challenger. It's the person that challenges people's ideas of their business, make, ask questions, make them want to be better, and really challenges their ideas and their perceptions about business. And my client read that and he was like, oh my God, I saw you when I read the book. But I thought, you know, and I've said this to the author actually about, you know, making an addendum to the book because, addendum to the book, because in reality, what they're teaching how to do isn't really... Um, looked at positively as a woman. So they teach you how to be this challenger. And I'm like, as a woman, these are all the things they tell me not to do. 
Mm-hmm. So if I want to be, if I want to be the best at sales and business development, I have to do these things that if I do them, you know, I get called names like aggressive and I, the other names I can't say on the podcast, but you know, it's like, we're not really teaching women how to be their authentic selves. Um, we're trying to, you know, navigate it a little bit to make it softer. Again, I hate that expression um, for the male dominated you know, industries or even for other women that have to listen to us. So it's not just about men. And by the way, for the record, uh, I always laugh in my industry because I, I say sometimes when I'm in construction to the room that the room is basically pale, male, and scale, meaning we have all, in my industry, most of the rooms are white men over 55 um, that have basically been in the industry for their whole lives. And they always are very, sometimes they're very insulted when I say that. And I say, look, guys, you know, it's the same thing if we were all 25-year-old Hispanic women, um, all in the same industry all at once. It's not that we don't, you know, that there's something bad about being a male, white male over 55. It's just, you don't have any diversity in thought at that point, right? So I'm not a feminist. I say all the time, I'm a capitalist. If you don't have diversity in thought, you cannot make money. You just can't. You're not going to make more money than the next guy because you're all thinking the same. And that's just bad. And we know that there's a million articles and studies that show that. So I love it. So one thing I love about you, Amy, is that your company has these really big clients and you are the CEO, you're a female CEO, you value diversity. So I want to talk about the diversity at Excite Module and the culture that you've built. So can you, can you tell me what it's like to work there, to work, what it's like to work, <laughs> to be your customer, to be an employee? I mean, I think we're a small company and we're a certified woman-owned business. We have about 40% women, um, some with advanced degrees, like within myself and as well as um, one of my senior project managers who went to Wharton. So for us, you know, and I have people that are under, you know, 35. Um, and then I have some guys that have worked together for more than 15 years. We're a small company. And I think it's very much a family-oriented company. But we are innovative. We're paperless. Uh, we have all remote workers. Like, we all, not everybody's in the same co-located space. And so no papers, big, big TV screens everywhere. And lots of whiteboards. We love to, like, draw things. We're very into getting up and, and drawing stuff. So, I mean, I think, look, at the end of the day, it's hard um, and as a small company to get exactly where you want to go. And that's part of my challenge is how far can I actually push an industry as a small company and making some choices about that, you know, potentially in the future, how far can you really push, push the, you know, the marker when you are that small. So, but I think most people look, the one thing about me is that everybody knows where they stand at all times. I don't really pull any punches. Um, and that's good. I never wanted to be guessing what my boss thought about me because it may be uncomfortable, you know, so either way, Everyone knows where they stand and, and people can say what they, what they feel, which I think is important, right? And I think the other part is, I also, from that, you know, I took a class called Core Clarity, which is how to interpret the Gallup Strength Finder assessment. And I do understand, and everybody took that, that course here at Excite, we do understand what our talents are here and what our talents are not, right? So that's all as, as important, right? So I know the things I am not good at, and I will say that. And I also know the lenses that my, you know, my people and employees um, and my partners, I know what lenses they're looking through every day because I know what their talents and their skill sets are. And we try to be cognizant of that because it's never about people, right? It's about, usually it's about process or it's about the way that people view the information. It's never, I, I heard from a man once, a big construction company uh, CEO, and he said, most people do things without harm intended. And so like, I try, I, I struggle with that, but I try in my mind every day to remember that most people are doing things without harm intended. It's a mantra that I try to remind myself of because I struggle with it. 
Yes, totally. So it's just like, it's about curiosity. It's about asking questions. A lot about self-awareness. I think that's something that shines through for me when you describe the culture, it's like that self-awareness, it's okay to not know things. And that's what really creates a space for you to be innovative. And it doesn't sound like a construction company that you guys work remotely, that you're not all together. So I think that's really cool that you've been able to build that. And talking about being a small company, not being able to change the whole industry because it's tough, but wanting to do that. What are some things that bigger companies can do to embrace diversity in the industry? Wow, that's a huge question. I think first, really at the top level, they have to understand why and the drivers and the benefits of that, right? So it's like you can't really get any change or any initiative done unless there are drivers for that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So unless you're, it's funny, in our, one, of, one of the industries I work in, in, in Subsea, we did a, we did a survey of, um, to understand where people were at with diversity and inclusion. And I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I was really astounded by the amount of leaders that actually don't see the benefit of diversity and didn't understand why they should do it. You know, what, what, would, what would drive them to that? And, and I was really taken aback by that. And it showed me that like, you know, at the end of the day, look, the people making decisions have to want to do it. We need some benevolent dictators and some educated dictators to say like, I don't care how hard this is. Like look at Netflix, there was just an article out saying they hire more women directors than anybody. I mean, that's an industry that had a lawsuit um, where they, if you haven't seen the movie, this changes everything. One of the worst industries in the world, maybe construction might be slightly worse, in hiring women leaders, right? So, but things do change. And that happens because people, you know, or if you look at, I think the other network was FX, and they said, we're just only going to hire X percent of women directors. I don't care, just bring me women directors. So you need sometimes the leadership to understand why they're doing it. And that needs to, that needs to permeate down through the masses, right? And you need to educate people about why they're doing it so that their choices are led by that. And at the end of the day, like, it's so funny. I, I, was, I was sitting with some, one of the largest content providers in the world at an event, and they were talking about diversity. And we were in an interactive round table, actually. And he, he looked at me and said, you know, but don't you feel like at some point, like, you know, this is really, should we have to, isn't it like affirmative action where you're going to feel like you got the job because you're a woman? And I said, look, when it gets to that point, I'll let you know. <laughs> like right now, <laughs> for the record, or like another, one of the other content providers like, look, you know, we're not really going to promote hiring of, of certified women-owned businesses because we let our general contractors do that. And I was like, if you think they're doing a good job, then you're, you're completely lost also. You know what I mean? It's like, I feel like first you got to recognize, it's almost like being an alcoholic. You have to recognize that you're an alcoholic. Let's like all admit we're alcoholics first, and then we'll go to start, a, you know, a, a 12-step program to fix the diversity issue. But if you don't admit that there's a problem first um, and understand the drivers for that change and why it's beneficial to your business model, then like you have, it's a really difficult, you really won't get much done other than a bunch of like conferences where you just go and talk about how hard it is to be a woman. I feel like that's it. You know, you won't get anything done. Okay, I'm curious. I want to go back to um, your favorite part about your first job. It's the pain point and discussing the pain with the customers. So it, to me, it sounds like these bigger companies, they're not experiencing the pain yet. It's not, the pain is not strong enough. So like, what would that pain be? How can we shine some light on the pain? You know, it's funny. I, I keep seeing these graphs for many years about like, um, the productivity index of manufacturing versus construction and how much more productive manufacturing is than construction, right? So I think as we get, you know, as people are literally aging out in the labor market, not just in the U.S., but everywhere around the world, and we have issues with, 
unskilled labor and we have issues with um, you know, the cost of construction going up and the complexity of the designs and the risk of building just keeps going up. You know, there is a certain tolerance level that we have in our own industry to that, which I'm, there was a study out about the best capital projects by like all the big end users. And you would be stunned at what people would consider their best projects. And I mean, jobs that were late and over budget are still on their best project list. And I thought, wow, we have such low expectations in our industry. Uh, if that made, that makes them feel like it was still a good project. And I think that, you know, the more we get from people in other industries to walk into our industry and say, that's not uh, good. You know, that's not right. We could actually do better than that. Or what, here's what we've done. You know, suddenly I have a friend in manufacturing and we tell people in construction, they should move towards being more of manufacturers, but then we don't teach them how to be manufacturers and they don't really know what that means. And they don't have tools. It's almost like the thing we talked about with, um, you know, with women in, in, in sponsorship. If you hear about it and it sounds good, but you actually don't know what to do to get that, it's pretty much worthless, right? Like, and then you're just like, okay, I can't, I can't hear about it anymore because I don't have the skills to get there. And I can't see what the vision looks like, right? You know, I, I can see it, but I can't get there. So, you know, for us, we've got to really do more simple teaching and we've also got to make it okay to fail, right? So that's hard in a project-centric environment, again. So we need serial, I call them serial builders, like serial killers. We need serial builders to understand this for the long game and start putting money into what is you know, considered R&D, research and development, a terminology that's unheard of in the construction industry. You know, we, need, we actually need guys to invest in the long game. And, and all the projects, and like, look, if you look at Singapore, I sat on the international panel of experts there. They've actually incorporated prefab into their building codes. They have more prefabrication uh, going on than anywhere else in the world now. And it took them, I think they spent over 500 million sing on that initiative and you know they're I think they're now six or seven there's actually they're probably eight years in and they had an enormous amount of people and money spent and time and now they've actually moved the needle right they they've moved the needle but you have to recognize they spent a lot of money time and effort to move the needle if you think it doesn't take that to get real change in an industry then you're just fooling yourself so somebody's got to start spending some money time and effort in changing this because we are we are literally on a downward spiral without it so it's like thinking about the pain is like, is it the pain really like the long-term sustainability of the industry? Well, let me put it to you this way. So you've probably read in the, in the newspaper that, and maybe you haven't, but in construction, Amazon actually owns now, you know, they're selling medical modules on Amazon for full hospital rooms. They also bought a modular home builder, invested heavily in a modular home builder. Um, and I always say like, listen, interestingly enough in the diversity, on the, um, on the industry now, it's not any longer about um, building for, even to get it to be built for less money. Right now you have all these technology providers that it's more about getting on the platform, which is where the big money is, than, than building for less. So as an example, right, Samsung. Samsung, when I, in my house, and think about your house or your apartment, think of all the products that are, could be Samsung, like your refrigerator, your washing machines, your microwave. How do they get your business? I basically go to a retail store and somebody who makes, you know, retail money, convinces me to buy one or all of their products, but they're not aggregated into my life unless somebody sells me one off of those. Now, Samsung has been doing some modular stuff at their, you know, over in Asia, because think about it. If you could move into a Samsung platform building, everything in the building is Samsung, everything that you're gonna encounter. If you're Amazon and you're building a hospital, everything that's provided in the hospital can be provided by Amazon. At some point, this platform becomes more valuable than just getting the construction done with the same old people. 
And these are people that understand innovation and manufacturing and procurement supply chain, you know, discussions. So it's like, I actually think that the construction industry is up for a huge displacement. Um, and, and that's what's going to happen. I mean, we right now have buildings being shipped from Europe into New York City that are building the high rises there now. So if you work in New York City in construction, I've been saying it for years, you know, we are, it's a, it's a world market now, especially when you're talking about prefabrication. I ship buildings all over the world. Um, imagine they get, those buildings get bigger and bigger and more technology integrated. And the guys that have the most to gain from that but happen to have the most money. So they can wipe out the face of this industry in a second if they want to. And I think it's just, again, it's happening. We're just, it's, it's like that Who Moved My Cheese book. You've got to sort of recognize that it's coming. And if you don't get on board, you won't exist. Yes. Okay. That's really interesting. So just like really paying attention to what's happening and then saying like, are we on board or are we going to be so resistant to change that we're not going to seize this opportunity? Right. I mean, for, for, the first thing is you have to recognize the threat or the opportunity, right? Most people yeah. can't even recognize, can't even recognize it. And then after that, you've got to actually do something. You've got to move and you've got to move quickly. You know, if you if you want to actually do, this is no longer a journey. Like one of my friends in the industry said, uh, Mortenson Construction, uh, Marty Hancherenko, he said, this is no longer a journey anymore for prefabrication and construction. It's a race. And if you think about it as a race every day, you're, you are definitely in losing or winning every day. So you have to ask yourself, are we winning this race? Or are we losing this race today? And that, that's hard. Mm-hmm. I love it. So it's really about innovation. It's about diversity. So being open to change and this was a lot. So this is a lot of information, Amy. Thank you so much for sharing all of this. Um, I always ask um, my guests on the podcast to share an action that people can do within 24 hours of learning something new. And I'm sure you'll appreciate this because you love to take action. You love to do something. So if somebody's interested in just being more diverse with their employees and getting that innovation, getting that culture up to speed, what is something they can do within 24 hours to implement that? That's a great question. I think, you know, if you're thinking it from the diversity perspective, I would say there are, just go online, literally go on LinkedIn and, and start reading a little bit about some of the companies that have done very well at diversity and what, why that is. Go on, actually, your one action item is go read about Netflix today and um, the women directors. Because I keep saying, we've got to look towards other industries that are succeeding. So go learn something about the women directors that, you know, Netflix is hiring more women directors more than anybody. And let's borrow from lessons that people have already learned. Okay, so I'm going to post that in the description of the podcast, but let's make something that they can actually do. So read, read about okay. Netflix women directors and then look at your company and say, like, what can I apply? Is that well, a good action? Honestly, I, you know, it's funny. I do. I think, I think a good action item is you really have to ask for the hard truth, especially if you're a leader, right? So most leaders surround themselves with yes people and people that want to impress them. But I actually think if you open yourself up to criticism, about what you're doing wrong as opposed to what you're doing right, that's a great action. And go and talk to some of the young people that work for you and go and talk to some of the minorities that work for you and go and speak to some of the women that work for you and say, this is a totally off the record conversation. It's not going to, you know, help. if anything, it's going to help me. It's for me. And get some hard, like enable them, empower them to give you the hard truths of the reality of the situation without punishment, without consequences. Okay, that is the best action. I love that one. So you just go 
ask the question, look for the hard truth. I love it. That is so valuable. Thank you so much for that, Amy. So I, you gave us a lot of resources. You talked about books. So I'm going to post all of those resources in the description, but how do people learn more about you and Excite Modular? So you can go to our website, which is excitemodular.com. And on LinkedIn, uh, I'm on LinkedIn as Amy Marks at Excite Modular, um, the hashtag Queen of Prefab. And just come and look me up. I'm actually very responsive. I've, I've learned early in life that I try to respond to all calls and texts within 24 hours. So there's rarely anybody I, I don't respond to if anyone. So I've loved, I love having conversations. I love talking about challenges and businesses. I'm open and happy to help people. We've got some big announcements coming up at Excite in the next few months. So also keep a lookout for that. Um, but yeah, follow me on LinkedIn and on Twitter and, um, and Instagram. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on, Amy. Great. Thank you for having me. This is amazing. I am so excited to share with you today that Ambitious Every Day is here in the world. It is like having your very own leadership coach in the form of a journal to help you focus and take action towards your goals every single day. It is the coaching exercises that I take my clients through, illustrated by the talented Jill Jackson. So it's a book. There are questions that you ask. It's just like I'm your leadership coach right there in with you, holding your hand, helping you figure out what ambition means to you, helping you set goals and come up with a plan to make them happen. And you can actually get a preview for free by going to andreajensen.com forward slash journal. You can also order your physical copy and it will come to you in the mail, but you can try it for completely free in a PDF right to your inbox. Go to andreajansen.com forward slash journal to get yours today. Hey, if you're still listening to the podcast, if you made it this far, I would probably assume that you're getting some value out of these weekly podcasts. And I would like to ask you a favor. If you could take a minute to give me a review on iTunes. So click on the podcast, give me some comments, give me some feedback because that helps spread the word about the Diversity at Work podcast, and it helps to build more diversity champions and get people learning, get people curious about what it's really going to take to close the gender gap. And after you've done that, if you still have some time, you could take a screenshot of the podcast and post it in your social media. That can help spread the word as well. Thank you so much.